Hi, I'm Elaine Boddy. And I'm David Treadway. Welcome to the Food God Pod. With Matthew's Cotswold Flower. Welcome, and in this episode, we are taking you back to the mill. But before we get to that, just wanted to say thank you to everybody that's listened to our previous episode, our Spice episode, where we were in the kitchen with Sanjay and Sashi from Spice Kitchen UK. It has been one of our most popular episodes, um, which doesn't surprise me because it was fabulous, wasn't it, David? It was absolutely knockout. And just the experience of watching Shashi cook that delicious food and prepare it effortlessly, you know, and not measuring anything, just chucking stuff in the, in the pan. Loved it. it yeah, Absolutely terrific. After we recorded that episode, I, um, I decided to make a, a number of the recipes in the Spice Kitchen cookbook which I have to say I do recommend to to anyone who likes spicy food and it's not too spicy you know sometimes I think people get worried about that word spicy oh no I don't like spicy food it's just well flavored food it's just you know such delicious food but I cooked Shashi's famous chickpea curry I also did Lovely. a tarka dal and I did go and fish curry now one of my daughters is is vegan so I made the basic sauce but then before I served it I separated it put the fish in one part of it and put uh, tofu in the other for for Meg who's 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 vegan and it was absolutely both were fantastic and I also made a really lovely mint and coriander chutney which is also in the cookbook and I was just blown away by the results because they were so good and the recipes Sanjay and Shashi's recipes are just so easy to follow. You do need to do a bit of prep. You've got to make some, um, you know, some garlic paste beforehand. You've got to make a tartar sauce and things like that. But if you if you prepare and plan it, it is so easy to do. So thank you, Sanjay and Shashi, for opening my eyes and my taste buds. Ah, uh, that's brilliant because we've had conversations about this, and you've said before how you wanted to get into using more spices. So if that has inspired you to do that, I'm so pleased. Oh, it and, really has, know, yeah. With what you've done with the sauce, that's exactly what I do because my men folk are meat eaters, but I'm not. So I will make the same sauce and mine might have some chickpeas in or something yeah. or just the sauce because yeah. I like it as it is. Whereas theirs will then have the meat in. Um, but what you said about the garlic paste, what I will add to that is to let people know you can buy these things garlic paste, ginger paste, garlic and ginger mix. So the things that Shashi makes in her kitchen, you can buy them frozen in chunks. Yeah, absolutely. So you can make life really easy. Yeah, and and, Um, and that's what's so good about the the book, particularly if, as we both have, we've got the the spice tins as well to go with it. So most of what you need is already in those spice tins. Yeah, it's like marketing perfection. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so great. Oh, I'm so pleased you had a go. That's brilliant. Yeah, brilliant, yeah. brilliant. So really, so and we've we've got some friends coming around in a couple of weeks' time. I think I'm going to do it again, but this time I'm going to do um, chicken curry. Can't wait to 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 get going and um, and and try some more recipes in the book. And just shows as well the versatility of it, which is brilliant. Yeah, but yeah, anyway, yes. on to the next episode. Yes, this episode. Back to the mill. Back to the mill. We are back to the place that we love. In this episode, we are back at the Cotswold Flour Mill. And on this occasion, we are taking you through, or should I say Bertie is taking you through, 
a complete mill tour. So for anybody that's been to the mill, that would like to go to the mill, can't get to the mill, this is going to take you on a virtual tour, taking you from the point where the wheat arrives at the mill all the way through to the point of it being put into bags ready to send out to the customer. And from there, we've then gone into some wheat fields for Bertie to educate us and show us the difference between a heritage wheat field and a more standard wheat field. And we, we would just point out, we recorded this on the 1st of August, 2023. And this was after a period of quite a lot of rain in the UK, which you will hear Bertie refer to. We had an appalling um, summer, actually, if you think about it. July is usually <laughs> a lovely month and it was a washout this year. <laughs> yeah, this is true. Um, and what we then get to learn is how that affects farmers. Yeah. And you've got a lot of farmers therefore on hold on tenterhooks waiting for some dry days to then be able to harvest. And it's all these things that we don't take into account when we just pick a bag of flour off the shelf. We also have a, a, another recipe for Sophie Carey, who's the recipe development manager at uh, Matthews Cotswold Flour. And she's got a fantastic Danish butter cake for us to try later in this episode. That is something that needs a sit down and a cup of tea and just <laughs> let it melt in your mouth. Yes, yeah, so we've got that coming up as well in the episode. And we have an interview that you did with Ian from FarmEd, David. Yes, so the second part of um, your interview with Bertie was actually recorded at FarmEd in, in a couple of their wheat fields as we stood and talked about wheat varieties and, and how it's grown and so on. And some months ago, right at the beginning of the, the podcast recording schedule, I did a an interview with Ian, who's the, who, who runs FarmEd, talking about its uh, its purpose and and they try out different farming methods and, and different kinds of wheat and, and how they grow crops and so on. And it's very, very interesting. If anyone's got the opportunity to go to any of the events at FarmEd, they're certainly well worth doing. But anyway, that's coming up a bit later on in the programme. Oh, and it's beautiful. The location, the buildings, all of it. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. So highly recommended. And it's literally two minutes up the road from the mill. Yeah. So all this is in the same place. But anyway, you're not here just to listen to us. Let us hand you over to uh, the brilliant Bertie Matthews. We're standing outside of the wheat intake pit, which is basically where we will tip all of the wheat. So what you can see going on now is basically organic high protein going into the mill. So what we would have done just before we tipped it is just make sure it's the right spec and it's the right protein, the Hagberg's good, all of those key things to make sure that the end result is exactly what you want in your flour. This is gonna go into organic bread flour. Okay. So the really important thing for organic bread flour is that's like top, top of the spec in terms of the top quality wheat you need. The low end of the spec would be something like a plain or self-raising or biscuit flour. Okay. And the reason you need it top spec is you need the protein strength. So this organic high protein uh, wheat will be, let's say 14, 15%. Right. And then if you make it into white flour, you'll lose 2%. Um, you'll also need really um, good uh, gluten quality. So we'll basically turn it into a little bit of flour, make it into a dough, and we'll gluten wash it, and we'll test the gluten quality, which is different from the gluten strength. And we'll also need to test the Hagberg, which is uh, referred to as a falling number, to make sure that we've got the right type of enzyme activity. And that's what tells us if the wheat is going to be a good enough quality for bread. And it's really important to get all of that stuff right. So those are the tests that are going to happen in all mills over the country. 
And are you doing that, do you take some away from the farm and you test that first before you actually pull the whole lot in or you pull it into the mill and you do those tests and then decide how you need to work with it? Yeah, so we're now August 1st, so the, the farms should have started harvesting, a lot of them haven't. And what we'll ask all of our local farmers or farmers around the country is, you know, give us a sample as soon as it comes off the combine and we can give them some initial test results okay. of like, this is where it is. And that's really important for a farmer because a farmer is going to get a better price for a higher protein, what you call top spec milling wheat, um, than he would farming wheat or growing wheat just for it to go into animal feed. So for farmers, they're going to get the top price for the top quality grain. So it's a really important moment to find out what the quality's like straight off the farm. And then we'll test it when it comes in this lorry just to get a representative sample. So a full mix sample. Because sometimes at the bottom of the field might be a worse result than the top of the field. So we need to get a representative sample. Therefore, there's a constant conversation between you and your farmers. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and for any home bakers listening out there, you know, farmers are the backbone of all the food we produce from the soils in our country. And it's a really important moment to find out what price they're going to get because that can make a huge difference to the farmer. And it could mean if they're getting the top price, then they can reinvest in the farm, they can get new equipment, they can get another person to help them out. That's going to be vital for their long-term business sustainability, as well as reinvesting, hopefully, some of that money into farming sustainability. So looking after soil, cover crops, incorporating livestock. So this is a really key moment in the year. And our job is to not only test it and mill it, but also, if the farmer has done an amazing job on his farm, offer him a premium or a premium plus for really good quality grain from really healthy soils. And I, really, when you take it down to the basics of like a home baker like me, what you're doing is making sure that my bread's going to turn out as I expect it to because the flour is going to behave as I expect it to. Exactly. So you go into the supermarket and you'll buy a strong white flour or you'll buy our Churchill white, for example. That bag is unlikely to change from year to year, so it's still going to look the same. So our job is to make sure that the product within it is as consistent as it was the year before. So all of the work we've just been talking about allows and generates that consistency because a baker wants to be able to use the same recipe and they want it to work exactly the same way. So getting it right here is really important. And if we get varied results on the farm, there's not just one type of wheat, there's four different groups, there's many different types of grain, and there's different varieties in wheat, like you would have varieties of grape for wine. And any year, you're going to have to blend those varieties to get that end result like you did last year. So you might be using more of one type of wheat and a little bit less of another, and that's called gristing. And gristing, the grist is the percentage okay. of the type of wheat you're going to use. How much grain is going to be in this lorry? There's going to be about 29 tonne in this lorry and that will turn into roughly 22 tonne of flour. You're, you will extract 78% of that flour, roughly, and 22% goes into something called wheat feed, which will go into feed pigs and animals. Okay. So 29 tonne of lorry goes into 22 tonne of flour, which will turn into 14,850 bags of organic strong white. Oh, brilliant. There you go. Gosh, so 14,000, kilo bags. Yeah. 14,850 bags. Isn't that, that's very cool. Right, so what's going to happen now then? Okay, so what we're going to do is we've, we've gone to the farmer, we've had a chat with him, we've picked the grain spec, and then we're going to test it here, which we'll show you in a bit. And it's coming in through this tip. It's then going to be 
uh, separate the wheat from the chaff and it's going to be elevated to the top of the mill before we condition it, which is adding water to soften the outer bran layer before you prepare to mill it. So it comes in at the bottom, but it goes all the way to the top yeah. to have all of the processes done for it to come out at the bottom again as flour. Yeah, so it's gravity down and then pneumatics up using okay. blowers. So is this now slowly feeding it through into the mill? So th yeah, this will basically, the screw will move it into the mill and then we'll use a big elevator to bring it up to the top of the, uh, what's called a dirty wheat bin, which just means it's come off the farm and it'll be stored there until it's ready to be conditioned. We will take in 20 of these uh, trucks a week, as an example, uh, and there'll be all types of grains, so organic, conventional, uh, spelt, rye, regenerative varieties. So yeah, there's lots of different types, so you need lots of bins. And I can see in your hand, or I can see in there, different bits and pieces that are in it. It's not all just wheat that's been picked up. So it's called dirty wheat because it hasn't necessarily been cleaned yet. It might have had one clean on the farm. And then you're going to have to separate these, this sort of the outer chaff layer as well, which we'll go and see when we're in there. So where are we now? Okay, so we're standing by the drum sieve, which is straight after when the grain has been tipped. And honest to God, I think this is probably the worst I've seen it in terms of dirty wheat. So we've got like a bit of what looks like rubber, a large bit of stone, sweet corn, uh, small stones, poppy seeds, a little bit of like Wow. Oats. So, so basically Bertie has got a handful of wheat full of all that stuff. So this is what now needs to be cleaned? Yeah, so it's got to be cleaned. And the reason it's that dirty is because it's, it's an organic variety. So the, the field has not been managed as closely as the conventional variety. So the drum sieve's going to take all of that stuff out uh, on the initial clean. We'll then store the wheat and then we'll go and condition it. I just want to show you an example of the type of grain we've got. So we've got rye, Canadian, English high protein, um, organic high protein, organic spelt, uh, all of the wild farm grain going into the wild farm flour, all milled through here. And um, so that's just a small variety of the different types of grain we've got coming in. So where are we now? We are in the lab. Okay. <laughs> so. This is a really important part because before, uh, as the wheat comes in, we might do a quick test coming off the farm, but then we need to do a full test before the lorry tips. So just before the lorry tips, we're going to take a representative sample. And in the lab, we're going to test for protein strength, protein quality. We're going to test for moisture. We're going to test for Hagberg falling number. So the protein strength, we're going to high strength for bread flour, lower strength for plain self-raising. The protein quality is going to test the gliadin and glutenin. And then the Hackberg falling number is going to test that enzyme activity, uh, the alpha amylase activity, and that will also help to uh, ascertain the quality of the wheat. So the lower the number, the worse it's going to be. And at this time of the year, we're August 1st, it's still been raining. If it keeps raining over the next couple of weeks in the farms, that falling number, the quality of the wheat, is just going to drop and drop and drop and drop. So farmers today are really going to be worried about how, what's their yield, how much wheat they're going to produce in the field, but also what their hagberg is going to be. They're like, oh, I'm worried about the hagbergs. And it is a danger when you've got very wet weather in August. You want blistering sunshine like they're getting in the rest of Europe. But we're not getting that this year. So this machine is going to test the grain. So the grain is going to go in here. It's going to test our moisture and protein, specific weight and hardness. And the moisture, we don't want above 15%. Some of the stuff coming off the fields today is 17, 18, 19%. Why is that bad? Because you have to dry it. 
why is that bad? You've got to you've got to extra cost, it's more fuel, more emissions. So it's a careful balancing act and all of this, like I said, has got one end goal, which is a consistent product. So if you put it if you put the wheat that's coming through now, that if you'd taken a sample from this lorry and you put it through all those tests and they don't meet what you need, do you then not tip it? I mean, what, do, what happens if you've got, it's... Yeah, you've got two options. You've got to send it back, yeah. which is not ideal, but we have done. Or we will blend it into a, a different variety at a very small rate. So blend it into like a biscuit or plain flour, which, and then the farmer was, is obviously going to get less money for that because it hasn't reached spec. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, farmer's got to reach a specification for grain. The flour miller's got to reach a specification for flour. And the baker's got to reach their own specification for what they want their bread to be. So everybody's targeting a particular area. And if we don't get it right at the beginning, you're not going to get it right at the end. So I'm going to ask you a question I asked you when I first came, whilst we're in here, um, to try and explain. So one of the things that I have to talk to people about a lot is the water content that they can use with their flour. So you can have 10 bags of strong white bread flour, but they all need different amounts of water. Yeah. So, could you explain to me, for my bakers, why is that the case? Well, from a farming and milling side, that board over there has got four groups of uh, wheat, and some bread flours will be made from a blend of, let's say, a group two or a group four, um, whereas really, bread flour needs to be made from group one, the top group. So, if, it's the, if the grist, the split, is using wheats that aren't as good, they've got a lower falling number, they've got a lower protein um, quantity, then they're going to absorb less water. So what a mill has got to do is he's got to pick the particular wheat varieties that are going to be most prone to the maximum amount of water absorption in the flour because they're going to have the best gluten quality, probably the best protein strength. So it's about selecting the right type of, the right variety of grain to begin with so that you can maximise water absorption in the flour and in the dough. So some, will, some varieties will just absorb less water because they're just a lower quality, essentially. So it comes back to quality or blend, basically, is how, why it will change across a set of flours. Yeah, okay. and, and what you don't see in flour bags is you don't necessarily see where the wheat's come from. You don't know what uh, the grist is in terms of the wheat that people use. Uh, you don't know if they're using one variety or another. And I think this is what we're trying to do over the next couple of years is actually release that information and be like, it's really good because it's using these great varieties and it's not using these poorer varieties that are, that are more suited for biscuit production or culinary plain and self-raising production. So I think that, that's a key thing for, for over the next year or two to put it, be putting on the bags. I think it would be helpful for me in the sourdough world if people would had an understanding of how this flour is going to behave in their dough, what the water uptake would be, you know, it would actually make a difference because the protein content is one thing, that's helpful, yeah. but actually that doesn't say anything about what absorption is like. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the next question for me is why is it that so often organic flours we need to have less water with it in our dough. Well, organic flowers are going to be grown in a completely different way. So going back to where do you get protein strength and where do you get protein quality from? So where do, where's the source of that? So one source is the soil. Organic might have better soils, but protein is going to come from an input, conventionally, that farmers put on. So that could be N, nitrogen, 
yeah it could be liquid nitrogen as an example and that is the input that is feeding the plant the nutrition to gain the protein that is required in an organic system they don't put any nitrogen on it so it is completely reliant on the type of soil quality so if you want a really good organic bread flour you have to go to places with really good soil structure and, and very large fields so that, that's where it's coming down from Conventional, they're using basically an input to drive the protein quality and strength and therefore water absorption and quality of the flour. In organic, no inputs, but sometimes that quality could be reduced and maybe it doesn't make us add good a flour. So how do you get around that and make a really good organic bread flour? Well, you've got to go to places with really good soil structure, with really good nutrition in the soil, but that's sometimes be difficult to get. So you might have to import it. The easy, easiest way to use it is just use less water when it comes to making dough with it because yeah. then if it doesn't have that strength to be able to hold what we want it to in the dough by you giving it less water you just make a firmer dough so it's an easier way of using it. And this is the, the disconnect between oh okay I can use just less water yeah but retailers, plant bakeries, they represent 85% of all flour, 5 million tonnes of flour in the UK, they represent 85% of the flour. They've got standardised processes. So the spec has to be exactly what they need it to be for the standardised process. But from a home baking point of view, which is 3 to 5% of the 5 million, um, they can can manipulate it. So if you draw a line from the home baker to the farmer and say, hey Mr. Mr. Farmer and hey Mr. Flour Miller, well, we could actually change our baking uh, recipe and you don't have to put as much nitrogen on, which might, might cost you three, six hundred pounds per tonne, which isn't damaging the soil as much, which is great, which is creating healthier soils and healthier soils will eventually, over time, create better protein breads. So home bakers can make that decision, but the decision is being blocked by standardised commodity process through plant bakeries or in-store retail bakeries, no offence. Um, so that's, that's, that's the impact that those 5% of home bakers can have. So therefore, we just need a high percentage of home bakers. We need to get more people baking at home so they're buying more of the flour and encouraging that process. And choosing flours that are produced in a way that is better for the soil. So it could be organic, it could be regenerative, it could be lower input. So look for brands that are promoting that so that you know the choice you've made in the supermarket is having a tangible impact to the fields you see outside. That would be my recommendation. You're listening to the Food Bod Pod with Matthews Cotswold Flour, bringing you Britain's largest speciality flour range. Bertie, where are we? So we're in a very small huddle in the uh, in our in our old mill, and we're standing by the brake roll, which is the first big machine, and it's about one and a half times the size of a lane uh, tall, and it's about one and a half times the size of a lane wide. Hi. Um, so, <laughs> no, no, no. If you're lying down. Um, so um, basically what it's going to do is the grain is going to come up through the top and it's going to shear the grain open. And what it's doing is it's going to take the uh, outer bran layer apart and it's going to start to open up the endosperm and the germ and, and getting it ready for milling. We've got an old, basically Victorian style building that was built by my great, great, great grandfather. Uh, another great on top of that, I think. So the challenge we've got for modern milling today is we've got traditional stone ground milling but with these more modern machines being put into a very small space, basically made of wood, it, we've got to be very careful with our health and safety and we've got to try and fit it all in. So what I'm going to show you now is when it's gone up to the sifter, it comes back down to be go through the reduction roll and I'll show you the reduction roll now. 
This is basically like a long F1 tyre and they're going in opposite directions and they're reducing the product to extract the white flour or the endosperm, which is going to go back up to the sifters again to go through the process and just make sure that we've only got pure white flour in there. So a strong white flour, you're extracting 78% of the grain. But when you look at things like zero, zero flour, that might be 55% of the grain. A pastry flour might be 70%. A cake flour might be 70, 75%. So the, the, the less you're extracting of the grain, obviously the higher the price is going to be because you're sending more to be a byproduct, which is, which is wheat feed, which goes to feed pigs and animals and things. So I've just taken you up here. We're between the roller floor and the sifter floor. This is called the spouts floor. But what we've also got in the spouts floor are four main stones to make stone ground flour. So that's separate to the roller mill. And that really, stone ground flour, I won't go into too detail, but for me, really good for whole grain, really good for uh, taste and smell because it's, all the grain has been milled at one time, whole grain, 100% the whole grain. Whereas in white flour, you're extracting 78%. All right, so just to explain again for people so they understand the difference, because it's often a question, stone ground flour versus roller milled. If I'm using Churchill's or a strong white, that's typically roller milled, yeah. whereas the stone ground stuff is going to be listed as stone ground. So tell them again exactly what makes the difference between the two. So stone ground flour is two stones on top of each other with the grain going in at the top and the stone is moving around and grinding the whole grain all at once. And then it's not necessarily, if you're making whole grain flour, it's not going through a sifting process. So it's 100% of that grain is being produced at that time. Stone ground flour can also be stone ground white where it's being reduced, but the whole grain is 100% of the whole grain and it's, going, it's being milled by stones. Yeah, so it could be granite or a French burr stone, for example. Roller milled flour, which has been going since the 1850s, that is going through two steel rollers moving in opposite directions. So why should you use fixed stone ground? Why should you uh, be happy with roller milled? For us, white flours, white bread flours, pastry flours, cake flours, pizza flour, that's better to be roller milled, in our opinion, um, because it's going to create a more consistent product that allows you to stretch the dough Whereas if you're making a whole grain product and you want some interesting flavors and you want some interesting smells and you want to use an einkorn or an emmer or a spelt or a rye, we think that stone ground flour is better. From a milling perspective, stone ground flour is a lot slower. Traditional commodity flour milling with the big flour mills, it's all about make it, make it fast, make it cheap, make it safe. We're not so focused about making it fast. What we're focused on is about milling as many types of grain as possible and having really great products from all of those grains. So if it's better to put it through the stones and it's a bit slower, then that's fine because it makes a better product, we believe, for whole grain. So it's slower, but there's surely less processes with stone ground. Far less process, far moving up and down the mill. You've got to remember, every time something's moving up in the mill, that's using energy. So there's a lot less energy being used in, in, in our stone ground plant because it's not having to go through different elements of the process. And what some people sort of think, oh, well, you can just grind grain and put it through a stone. Well, yes, you can do, but if you're having to make flour en masse, going to millions of people, you've got to have those elements of the process for safety and consistency. Anybody can mill grain through a stone ground plant, that's fine. 
but if you don't have all of the things that cost a lot of money, then you're going to increase your risk of, the, of, of something going wrong. It may not be as safe, it may not be as consistent, whereas you need all of this stuff to make that consistent product. People need to realise what we're looking at here when you say stones. These are big, wide stones that you've got encased in these holders. So you've got to have them encased, otherwise flour will go everywhere. So these will go round and we've got four to be able to mill more at once. So all of our stone ground whole grain will come through here. Bertie, we're in my favourite room of the mill because it's all moving. So these are our sifters and uh, they are about uh, two metres high by about three or four metres long, three metres long, let's say. And they're moving around um, because what they're doing is they're sifting out all the different particle sizes. So when we were, saw the brake roll, uh, the product was coming up here, being separated and being sent to the reduction mould. And inside here, there are basically silk trays, very, very fine, of different uh, sizes to separate all of that out. This is a really key part of the mill, and again, we talked about milling a product that's consistent, it's safe and high quality. You need to invest in very modern, advanced sifters to be able to get a really consistent product. So this is where we are now. It, it, as I mentioned before, it's not where you want to come to if you're hungover because the whole boxes are yeah. moving. And I can see four of them. Is there four of them in total in this room? Well, yes, there are, but they've got different compartments in each and they're all doing a different thing. So each sifter is is sifting at a different particle size? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. This is so cool. We are now in the packing area. So we are stood in front of a machine that's picking up massive bags, 16 kilo bags, that picks them up, opens them wide, fills it with flour, then moves along, gets sewn, so it's sewn up, and then moves onto a conveyor belt where it gets labelled and sent further down the end. Is that right? I couldn't have explained it better myself. Um, we also metal detect it, which is a final metal detection chest. So this um, uh, packing machine will do six tonne uh, an hour, which is 390 bags. And I'm definitely not cheating using a calculator, but that's 9,360 bags per day, which is quite a lot. So this will go faster than the mill, um, but we've also got the small bag packing line upstairs. So at the moment we're milling even load, which is a white flour, slightly lower protein than a strong white and it will go to some large bakeries around the country to make uh, basic tin loaves and all different types of bread. And then above us, we've got the small bag machine, which is making strong white, which will go to uh, Tesco and to Artisan bakeries. And then above that, we've got a mixing and blending plant where we'll mix and blend our eight grain and seven seed and Cotswold Crunch. So uh, we've got Peter at the moment upstairs just changing over to a different flour. And because we're doing you know, near 100 types of flour, they're constantly changing the type of flour that we're producing, which means they've got to clean it down and it's go, 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 go. So what we've got going next to us is a blue conveyor belt. Now I've seen this going before. So this is where the small packs come down in bags of five. The small packs are going, coming down here in bags of five. So you've got below us, you've got a white bread flour going to large bakeries and then this will be all going to home bakers behind us our warehouse where we've got all the different types of flour that we're producing ready to go out with the two guys two uh, two guys per shift putting it on the lorries and sending it all over the country for anybody that's a baker and the people that are listening my sourdough bakers 
you would all be in heaven. I'm literally stood here overlooking a pallet full of bags of strong white bread flour, the flour that I use in my starter. I mean, you'd all just be diving in, I think. We need a trolley dash. One day soon we'll, we'll have a place where everyone can come and visit um, for themselves and we can all do a big baking session. So that's the, that's the big plan for next year, to build that at the end of this warehouse so people can come and see the farm, see the mill and do some baking, maybe have a glass of wine. Um, so watch, watch this space. Brilliant. So I've got a question for you. Do you think if we lined up a whole set of flowers in bowls and blind tested, you could tell what they were by the smell and the feel? I think I could probably tell the difference between the different types of grain. Yeah. It would be very hard to smell between the different types of white flour. But you if could there probably were more the whole grain flowers and the is whole heritage. Grain, is there a whole grain or a different grain? I reckon I could tell you. And with the white flowers, I think Canadian feels very different from strong white. I think you can feel that, like, particularly in dough. It's, e it's easier when it's in the dough form, harder when it's in the flower form. But even then, you can like, feel it's lower extract. Like, you could feel the difference between a zero zero flower and a strong white flower. Because yeah. it is a very different product. We're now stood outside facing pallets and pallets of flour, bags and towers and towers of flour. Thank you for this, for showing us all the way around. I take it this is from this point that they're all going out to all of their deliveries. That is correct. We've got Martin and John behind us. Good looking ones in the mill, apparently. And uh, they're going to be putting, um, you can get about 14 pallets um, on those in the large lorries and a bit lorry above that, about 25 pallets. So Martin and John will crack on, picking all the different types of flower variants. So you see on this, uh, Palette, for example, it's going to a bakery, all the different types. So they've got to pick the right ones. Let's go to Norfolk tomorrow, Manchester, London tomorrow, so all over the place. And our drivers get up at four in the morning, pick up their full lorries full of flour and send them to artisan bakeries and wholesalers and restaurants all around the country. Thank you for this. I really hope everybody's enjoyed it. The best thing to do, of course, for anyone is to actually come and visit and be here. So we hope we've given them a little snippet of the Cotswolds a little snippet of where it all comes from. Absolutely, love to see people, could see where it's made, come and see the farms, so you can come and do some baking. You're listening to the Food Bod Pod with Matthew's Cotswold Flower. Eight generations, 200 years of passion and dedication, one beautiful Cotswold mill. So thanks to Bertie for taking us through that amazing process and it really is a delight to have visited the mill and see exactly how the wheat comes in, what happens to it and watch those bags of flour coming out at the other end. It's, it's a magical process and we're grateful for Bertie for taking the time to take us round. More from Bertie a little later when we get to Farm Ed, but first... Let's revisit our session with Sophie Carey, who is the Food Development Manager at Matthews Cotswold Flower. And when we visited her early in the year, uh, she showed Elaine a fascinating recipe, which is a lemon-infused shortbread kind of cake. Uh, and it's got a, a, a crunchy, very crispy, very sugary top. It's got a lot of butter in it as well. So this is not a recipe for the faint-hearted, but my goodness, was it delicious. So let's join Elaine and Sophie Carey as she shows Elaine how to prepare a Danish butter cake. It's a bit of a strange cake recipe. It's 
made with a dough hook and it creates definitely a soft dough rather than a batter, um, which you rest briefly before you bake it. The end result is a fantastic, moist, decadent, uh, simple cake. Okay, because it's got, it's, there's a, the, the butter, sugar and flour is yeah. all the it's same one amount. To one, yeah. Yeah, so that, that seems... It's very simple, but it's really delicious. So that's the kind of thing they would say in the States and say it's a cuppa, cuppa, cuppa. Cuppa, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> I think it's uh, similar to a pound cake recipe, right. uh, which typically would have been a pound of butter, a pound of sugar, a pound of flour. I've added the lemons because I find it quite rich otherwise, a bit right. too rich. But normally it's cut into very small triangles or one inch squares to serve. Oh, it's I see. So you would eat of, it as a small yeah, amount a little, anyway. Yeah, a little, you know... Um, a moose bouche. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Right. four. that's what I was looking okay. for. Okay, so what are you starting with? So to start off with, I am going to just get my bowl with uh, butter and sugar. So I'm using golden caster sugar because I like the colour that it gives a bit more. So we're starting, we, you're going to use a mixer again, so we've got the mixing bowl yep. on the scales. And I'm actually going to use a dough hook again, which okay. is unusual for cake. You would normally only really use this for bread doughs. Okay. Um, but for cakes, for this cake in particular, the dough hook really helps to bring it together without overworking it. Okay. Um, the good thing about this recipe is it's 250 grams for this size of butter, sugar and flour. So you don't have to weigh your butter because that is one block of butter. <laughs> <laughs> so in, yeah, in the UK, our butter comes in blocks of 250 grams. So that's easy then, it's just straight in. Yeah. Do you break it up a bit? I am going to because it's still quite fridge cold. So because You're I just chop it up a bit. don't want it to stress the mixer. And I'm going to add the same amount of sugar. So we've got the butter and the sugar going in. Are you going to cream them together? Yes. Or are you going to add the flour? I'm going to cream them together, but not as you would have known it with a paddle attachment to the mixer. I'm creaming it together as much as you can with a dough hook. Okay. Normally, if you have a paddle attachment and you're making a Victoria sponge, you'd cream them really, really well together to incorporate as much air as you can at that point. Yeah. Um, but this cake doesn't really require too much air, actually, so we're going to cream it as is. Although I am going to add some vanilla now. And you're using a vanilla paste rather than an essence? Yes, I, I, it's personal preference, but I prefer working with a vanilla paste. I like the look where you get the, the seeds in there as well. And it's, you know, it's quite handy to use, really, because it, it doesn't dry up, it doesn't go off. It's the real deal, and it, it smells and tastes lovely. So I'm going to pop that on to mix with the dough hook. And how long does that need to mix initially? Or it are needs you to watch go, it? I'll watch it to see, but it realistically needs to go for about three minutes, maybe even four. You want to start off slow and then increase it a little bit as you go. So with this recipe, because you're using a dough hook, quite often, at the start, especially if your butter's very cold, um, you'll need to just scrape the bowl down with the bench scraper just to make sure that the dough hook is picking up all of that butter and sugar. Otherwise, you might find that it's going for a long time and not actually doing anything. It just moves it up the sides, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, it can do, yeah. It's quite a dense, buttery cake, so you want to avoid adding air, which a paddle attachment would, whereas a dough hook avoids that quite well. I think this is this is pretty much ready for the next step. So we've been using the dough hook 
just to really blend the butter and sugar. Oh, wow. Um, it's not creamed like no. we would have done. No, it is, it is just you a really, granular paste. Yeah, you really, and that's why this is actually a great recipe to do by hand. The only thing is if you're doing it by hand, mix it slowly. Don't beat it because you'll beat the air into it and that's what you want to avoid. Okay. Um, so the next step, what we're going to do is we're going to add in the egg and the lemon zest. Um, and following on from that, we're going to do the flour. Do you think size matters? <laughs> when, it, when it comes to eggs? When it comes to eggs, I'm going to say not really. Okay. I think that the parameters for a good size egg is quite wide. Yeah. What I would say is, unless you're using liquid egg that you can buy in a carton, definitely weigh that. If you look at your egg and go, that's a small egg, or that is the biggest egg I've ever seen, in that case, it might be worth weighing. Yeah. But otherwise, I don't think it's necessary. See, Mine here look actually very small. Yeah, That's I mean, a really particular. small egg in particular. So I'm actually going to weigh it. But I, okay. contrary to that, I wouldn't really recommend it because I think it's a, often a bit of a waste of time. See, when I was writing my first book, uh, when I was starting to write books and it became very clear that I needed to be very specific in recipes, and I was, I, I didn't know quite how far to go with some of the detail. Yeah. So I wasn't too sure about what, whether to write the size of eggs as a standard egg or a large egg. I'm, one of my best friend is in the States. So I've got eggs in the UK and I'm weighing them, separating them. I said, right, can you buy me a standard egg in the States yeah. and tell me what that one weighs? Yeah. So that you could do a comparison because absolutely. I knew that people would ask. Yeah, absolutely. So to actually just allay people's fears, I did actually get to go down the route of weighing eggs and yeah. yolks and whites and stuff like that. Completely. So that, that small one that I just cracked, that only weighed 45 grams, where yeah. a regular egg is about 70. But there is a good parameter that you've got in, in terms of eggs with baking, especially yeah. in a recipe like this. I might leave out, so the two eggs combined weigh 95 grams. I might leave out a tiny bit, but I would in general feel pretty good about putting that whole yeah, 95 grams into my recipe because a regular egg yeah. is 70 there or thereabouts. So you're talking about a small amount bigger. And 25 grams of an egg, when you've got a dough, that yeah. actually it's quite a heavy dough, yeah. it's quite a rich so, dough yeah. with everything that's in it. That, that extra 20 grams of egg is not actually going to make that much it's difference, It's not going to make a difference at okay. all. So and I think it is something that people need to not stress too much about. Definitely. So, yeah, I'm just going to chuck all of that in there into the, um, the butter and sugar paste. And then I'm also adding um, my lemon zest. Um, I've just done pretty much two lemons. I'll just take the last little bit off of this one. Okay, so we've got the zest of two lemons. Yes, if you okay. want it more lemony or less lemony, this is pretty much open for interpretation. You're free to add more or less as you like. I've seen some people add almond extract to this. That's quite nice. It's really personal preference, whatever you, okay. whatever you like with your recipe. Just mix it through gently. Yeah, absolutely. So again, you're gonna want to eventually scrape your bowl down and do that a couple of times. This is the, the trouble with a dough hook is it does take a little while for it to really combine together. But you just keep persevering with it. Five minutes, you should be, you should be there or thereabouts. Okay. So um, it's been mixing for a little while now on the dough hook. It's, don't be scared at this point. It does look curdled. It looks 
pretty gross. I it's, often think it's that, coming together. Oh, you just you, have to add the flour, and then you get to a better place. I but always think cake, that when you make these kind of things, it just kind of looks like curdled. You just got to trust the process. Egg, kind of, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So now I'm just adding in um, a pinch of salt. Any just kind of salt, just table yeah, salt. Any salt. I've used unsalted butter, so you just need to season it the same as you would for savoury food. Okay. Um, and then I'm just going to add in my flour. So for this, I'm just using classic plain flour. So which one are you choosing? Just the straight um, it's plain just flour? It's the, the standard Cotswolds flour, plain flour. Um, you could use the organic for this if you'd like, but you don't want anything with too much protein. You don't want any bread flour, really. Okay, so plain flour is going to be 10 to 11 grams of protein. That's it, yeah. And again, it's 250 grams, so it's a really simple recipe because it's the same amount of everything plus one egg, plus some vanilla and some salt. I don't know what you think, and things like this, I often use white spelt flour instead yeah. of plain flour. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice way to incorporate something new. So the trick is, at this point, not to overmix it. You want to add in your flour, let it go just until it's all incorporated, because then we're actually going to give it a very brief knead on the on Kneading the a cake Kneading day. Kneading a cake day, yeah. So it is something that is completely different. Yes. And that's where, if you did have a slightly larger egg, or depending on what brand of butter you've used, you might need a sprinkle of extra flour, but it's yeah. nothing to be concerned about. Just add it in until you've got something pliable. And how long at this point? A couple of minutes. So next, uh, now that I've tipped it out, I'm just going to, I've sprinkled some of the plain flour onto the bench and some also on top of the dough. Uh, it's a very soft, pliable, sticky dough. So you're not looking to knead it here, but you do want to bring it together into some kind of smooth ball so that you can wrap it in cling film. So to do that, you do just need a little bit of flour just to make sure it doesn't stick to everything because it will stick because um, it's so pliable and soft. And this is, again, this is the, the plain flour, the Matthews plain flour that you used in it. That's right. And it's not going to affect the consistency of the dough by adding extra flour to the surface. No. You can see here when I've touched a piece underneath, it has stuck to my finger. So you That's want what it you to want. be sticky. You're just adding enough flour so that you don't get yourself into a sticky mess. But if you do just keep adding and adding and adding, you are going to change the texture, but it might change it into a shortbread. So if it does, you can just put it in the oven and bake it as a okay, shortbread. Okay, so there's always an answer. <laughs> so when you were just touching the dough just then, yeah. you it, you got the indent of your fingertips in it, and that's okay. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's holding anything you do yes. to it. It's like a really, really soft biscuit dough at this point. So okay. um, almost a mix between a, a, a bread dough and a cake batter, and that's really what you want. You don't want to take it too far into bread. You don't want to let it be so soft that you can't, work it okay. but equally if you just if you know don't be scared to add a bit of flour is, is my point here um, so what does it need to do now so now I'm going to wrap it up in some cling film and let it sit for 10 minutes to rest just to relax before we press it into the tin it doesn't really need to rise or anything here um, you're just looking for it to, to rest and relax otherwise if you try and push it all into the tin now you might end up with air pockets and um, bubbles that you don't need. Okay, so that's what the relaxing does. Yeah, that's It's just it. to bring it together a bit more. Yeah, it, it, it just gives you a better result with, with the mixing that we've just done. You want the flour, the gluten to be totally relaxed when you put it into the tin because we're going to press it down and level it. So if it's too firm, you won't be able to do that and you won't get a nice smooth top. 
And you're going to leave it just on the counter to do that? Just on the counter, yeah. Okay, because right. if you do that in the fridge, it's going to firm up the butter and make it a different consistency. It would. So you can always make this quite far in advance because there's no raising agent in it. Uh, it doesn't matter if you make it three or four hours ahead, but if you are going to put it in the fridge, make sure that you leave it out at room temperature for a decent amount of time so that it goes as soft as when you made it. So you do have to account for that if you're going to do that. So it's, kind of, it's a bit of a Play-Doh consistency, basically. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so it's just... Nicely wrapped up in some cling film, just going to sit on the counter, you said, for about 10 minutes? 10 minutes or so, yeah. Okay, and then come back to it. That's right. So the dough's rested a little bit and I've got my cake tin ready. Um, I've just greased it with some cake greasing spray, but you can use a brush with some melted butter or vegetable oil, something just to kind of slick it up a little bit. I'm not very good at this because I don't make cakes very often. But so if I do grease a tin, yeah. I get a bit of kitchen roll and just yeah. wipe it through my butter and wipe that round. Yeah. Does that do the that, job? That will work as well. Okay. If your tin is particularly sticky, you can put some greaseproof paper down, but I know that this one doesn't stick. So You tend to know your own baking you implements, do, yeah. don't you? If you don't know it, Air on the side of caution. <laughs> okay. So I'm just tipping it out of the its little cling film wrapper. So um, do you have any idea what diameter this is? It looks about 18 uh, centimetres. That's an 8-inch tin. I do know that because I only just bought that tin to make my wedding cake. <laughs> uh -huh. You made your own wedding cake? I did, I made my wedding cake, yes. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, so you just again, use a scraper or if you don't have a scraper, um, you could uh, just give your hands a quick oil um, before you do this. It's just because the dough is quite sticky. So pop it into the tin. So we're just scraping the dough off the counter, straight into plopping the tin. it straight into the tin. And then again, you can use a damp hand um, or if you've got, you know, uh, you could even use reuse the same bit of cling film that we used before. You just want to press it in because it's very stiff dough. It's not self-leveling like a lot of cake mixes are meaning it won't level itself out in the oven once the butter starts to melt. So what, whatever shape you press it to, it's going to hold? That's what it will hold, pretty much, yeah. So you, we're baking this as a, a single round piece. Yes. Do you, once it's out, you then cut it into pieces I to do, serve yeah. it? Yes. Do you cut it immediately or when it's cool? Uh, you've got to wait for it to cool down a little bit, um, okay. for about 40 minutes, just because there's such a high volume of butter in there. If you try and cut it immediately, it would probably just crumb away. So, so all that we're doing at the moment, Sophie's doing, is just gently pressing this down so that you're creating a flat surface. You can in the top. even use your scraper, scraper just to really just smooth, to smooth the, top. the top off. But again, it doesn't matter if it's not perfect. It's um, it's a very rustic recipe. It's a rustic cake, very traditional in Denmark. So just do as you feel you want to. Some people actually as well traditionally would now that we're at this point where you've got a nice smooth top they would take a fork and create some patterns oh, on yes. the top almost okay. like you would for a florentine yeah. you know in the chocolate um, but i prefer to leave it as is because you get a nice flaky top then so the next step before we bake it you want to liberally dust the top with a bit more sugar just your regular caster sugar that you used in the recipe just give the top a really nice dusting so is i take it that's going to create a, a crust is it, it going to caramelize it as well, well it sometimes it, it does go golden brown but the main point of it, it creates this really nice flaky texture on the top so that's what you're looking for a really nice crumbly flaky top and it does go brown and give a good flavor especially because i've used golden caster sugar um you get already that slightly caramelly texture. if you're watching this what you'll be able to see is this lovely flat 
dough that's been pushed into our pan and we've got some sugar sprinkled over the top ready for it to bake. Yeah, um, so now this is ready to go into the oven. Um, you need your oven at 170 degrees for this and it's a fairly long bake. So it's quite low. 40 and 50 minutes for this one. Um, because of the high proportion of butter, you, you want to go low and slow with it because otherwise you'll end up with quite a hard, almost like more of a biscuit. Is it going to rise at all? No. So it's almost a bit shortcakey. It's like a shortcake, yeah, but yeah. It's, it's just that little bit more cakey. Okay, brilliant. Into the oven we're going to go. 45 minutes. 45 minutes on that one, and we'll see it when it comes out. You're listening to the Food Bod Pod with Matthew's Cotswold Flour, bringing you Britain's largest speciality flour range. I believe the cake is ready. The cake is ready. We're right. going to take it out now. <laughs> Look at that. So all of the sugar has created this amazing crust. It's like a crispy crust. This is definitely oh. a cake that needs to sit in the tin for a little bit until it cools enough for us to remove it. Because it's so high in butter, so high in fat, if we tried to take it out now, it would just all fall apart. So you've got to oh, leave okay. it to sit in the tin for a little while. until. Even if uh, you had a, a pan with a removable even base? Even if you had that, I really would recommend leaving it until it's at least, you know, for at least 20, 30 minutes until it's cooled slightly. Just because that butter will, it's so soft, it, you know, the cake needs to set almost. Otherwise, if you try and remove it, even if you popped open an easy easy release tin, it would probably rip the cake in half. Okay. <laughs> well, I can tell you, everybody, the smell, you've really got the lemon. It hasn't risen very much. It doesn't rise particularly, but you do have this lovely, crispy, sugary crust on the top, and it goes nice and mottled as well. <laughs> and it does look almost, like you said, about with um, shortbread, that yeah. kind of finish on the top. Yeah. I think I guess that's from putting the sugar yeah, on yeah, the top. Yeah, yeah. Kind of, I mean, we saw when it was baking, you almost get this pool, it, it starts to lift around the edges and you get this pool in the middle of butter and sugar. And that's really what gives it this flakiness on the top. Um, as that evaporates off the water and that you end up with layers of fat and sugar that have caramelized. And Not I very think, healthy, but very tasty. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's an important point for people to know. So when it's baking, it does create that pull in the middle, and yeah. that's okay. Yeah, that's, that's part of the fine. process. Yeah, don't freak out. It's, it's absolutely fine. Just uh, leave it in there for a bit longer and have patience. Ah. <laughs> right, so we'll let that sit for a bit and uh, get on with something else. Yeah. Our cake is ready. Yep, it's uh, it's cooled down a lot, so uh, I think we can safely turn it out now. Can I just? Um, yeah. Can anybody hear that? Can you hear that? That is the, the lovely crunchy crust <laughs> that that's got on the top. Yeah. Wow. So um, okay. I'm just gonna, in one swift movement, tip it, give it a bit of a jiggle. You might need to release. loosen around the edges with a yeah. knife if you need you it to come out. You might need to, especially because we've let it sit for a little while now. So we'll just give it an encouragement. Ah, oh, here we go. Here we go. There we go. It's out quite a cast. robust cake, so don't be scared to throw it about a little bit. Oh, look. So you can see it is very dense. It is, it's not like a sponge cake at all. It's really... And it is, like you said, it would be quite questionable to call it a cake. Yeah. It's almost a biscuit. It's really a, a very rich petit four that in Denmark would be served with coffee in the afternoon. It's very sweet, very rich, and very Moorish. So, I would say uh, you probably don't need much. <laughs> you don't. Um, and how it's normally served, either it's cut into tiny triangles, 
or one inch cubes. So I'm going to go ahead and cut it into squares, um, but I'm actually, because we've got the crackle on the top, I'm actually going to use a serrated knife just so I don't um, disturb that crackle. Well, yeah, because you want to keep the crackle, don't you? You do, yeah. And it really has a nice lemony smell. It does. Well, this is when you're going to have someone in your kitchen just wanting to pick off the little bits <laughs> yeah, that have come off on the exactly. edges. Exactly. Uh, and it keeps really well, this cake, because of the high proportion of fat. It lasts really, really amazingly in, a, in an airtight tin. So, you know, you can make it well in advance, really, if you want to serve it, it looks for a amazing. tea or something. And um, it's, it looks quite nicely moist inside. It is, yeah. It's, it's, let me give it a taste. What do you think of your handiwork, Sophie? I think it's pretty good. <laughs> is, your, is your mouth watering it, David? Yeah. With a well. cup of tea or a coffee, it's uh, you know spot hey, on, really. Hey, hey, what's this hand coming in our direction? <laughs> mm. A really nice, <laughs> simple buttery cake. That uh, is David miming to die. <laughs> but yeah, it's my uh, lemon Danish butter cake. Brilliant. Thank you very much, mm, and thank, thank you. you for having us in your kitchen. No, thank you for coming. Please, everybody, you will be able to find this recipe on the website. Just look for the episode. If you want to see all of this, there's videos of yep. all of it. It's been absolutely brilliant. Thank oh, you. Oh, thank you for coming. No, you are a baking superstar. So thank <laughs> you for having us in your kitchen. Thank you. No worries. And many thanks to Sophie Carey for allowing us into her development kitchen at Matthew's Cotswold Flour Mill and showing us that delicious recipe for Danish butter cake. It really was a lovely recipe, wasn't it, Elaine? Oh, it was. And Sophie is amazing. You know, there's a reason that she's part of the business. She is an absolute baking whiz. There's nothing that she doesn't know about. Whatever baking question you throw at her, you know, she yeah. knows the answer. And something she did refer to in the recipe, if you make it, you will get a pool of butter, sugary butter across the top as it bakes. Just go with it because that's what turns into the crust. But yeah, brilliant. And, and great to hear her tips and watch her work. Absolutely. And we've actually got another recipe from Sophie coming up later in the season. So if you enjoy Sophie's recipes as much as Elaine and I do, then then hang on because there's some ramen noodles on the way. So we look forward to that. Oh, there is. And again, watching her make them, I mean, it just to me, I would think, gosh, surely that's that's hard work. She just just throws it together. Yeah, just yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. anyway, back to this episode from the mill. We are now going to take you along the road to farm ed which is an amalgamation of the two words farm and education because it is somewhere where they love to share and educate about farming david is talking to ian wilkinson the man who's created farm ed so he'll be sharing his interview with him and a conversation afterwards with the lady that we nicely call the worm lady who we definitely invite you to listen to because it's fascinating. If you ever thought, you know, or wondered what the purpose of a worm was, it's, it's brilliant. So we take you now to FarmEd. Hello, I'm Ian Wilkinson. I'm co-founder and director here at FarmEd. FarmEd's an unusual place. I don't think there's anything else like it out there. Uh, we have a demonstration farm, an educational centre, and we're a place where people meet to connect, share ideas, and hopefully inspire each other.
Ian, what's the, the main purpose of PharmEd apart from education and demonstrating best practice? What's, what's actually behind the whole enterprise? Well, I've been in agriculture for 40 years and we know that people that eat food, you and me, are going to determine what it does. And agriculture is responsible for emissions in the in you know greenhouse gas emissions warming the planet uh, and also is the solution to that problem or part of the solution to that problem in terms of sequestering carbon back into the soils for all of our benefits so i can see that a farming system that evolves right now is going to be very important to our long-term survival on the planet so that's what we're here for to aid in a small way those those conversations in a non-judgmental way to allow people with all different interests, whether you're eating the food, growing the food, or anything in between, to have a say and a view and opinion on this really important area. How do you do it? So we have a lots of small things that we demonstrate. So we can show some of the things that people might do in the future. So for example, uh, rather than just having our farm produce one thing, a sort of commodity production-led farm, we have lots of micro-enterprises here on the farm. So we produce grains of different types uh, for milling, uh, for eating. Uh, For breakfast this morning I've had uh, honey cake which contained the flour from this farm. For example, the honey also from the apiary on this farm and uh, milk in my tea was from the cows on this farm. So you can begin to see a bit of a pattern emerging. But what's important to note is that, of course, three things doesn't, doesn't make a food system. Also, as a demonstration on this farm, we have uh, micro-businesses producing vegetables, fruit, all the things that we've been importing from around the world, out of season, you know, quite expensive environmentally, many of them. So we're trying to show how lots of small things together can make food systems locally consumed in season, creating work for local people, keeping the money in the circular economy, all these things that we know are becoming much more important socially. So it's not just about the environment, it's also about the social dimension in our locality. So it's a circular enterprise in that sense, in that you're demonstrating things that commercial farmers might want to use in their own production. Absolutely, yes. I mean, as a demonstration, of course, we're you know we're not purely focused on one line of profit. We do know that you know many farmers will come and say, "Well, I'd have more sheep here if it was me, or I'd, you know I'd grow more vegetables if it was a veg farmer." But um, you know, the point here is to demonstrate all the things that could help solve the planet's problems, or at least our place on the planet, and um, and not just having one singular uh, output. In fact, you know, throughout my career um, in agriculture, many of us have specialised. You know, we've become really, really good at one thing. But of course, that's the problem with the world, isn't it? You know, when you think about it environmentally, we've lost all the diversity, and actually. It's that diversity we're trying to get back to so just think in simple terms it's mixed farming you know it's not complicated we're trying to have a a a whole ecosystem on the farm so that it's self-sufficient so we're growing our own fertilizers you know with legumes plants that can fix nitrogen into the soil We're, we're growing our own fertility by growing green plants for most of the year which will increase soil fertility so we don't have to use fertilizers it's these are the sort of things that we're trying to do to make the world a better place and you've also got quite an interesting relationship with with matthews cotswolds flower haven't you Yes, so we're we're growing uh, wheats here that we mill, and the wheat that we have is a is a mixture actually a population. Without boring you the details, we have these wonderful fields with uh, so much diversity, and it's great for wildlife, great for carbon sequestration. And then we want to mill it locally, and we're lucky we've got Matthews Mill a mile away, so we've been able to use their stones there to mill our flour, and we have whole meal, and we we sift some and make some into nearly white flour too, depending on what products we're making. But we bake it all here. 
So at FarmEd we have um, kitchens and, and cooks and we are so lucky to be able to complete the circle. So we not only grow it, we have it milled locally at Matthews and then of course we are able to consume it. So our, whoever you, you know, whoever's here can eat, can eat the food from the farm. It's so important. The virtuous circle gets more virtuous, doesn't it? I mean, it's just yeah. c- it's completely well, circular. It's absolutely circular and it's authentic. I mean, you know, you know it's never going to be perfect. We're never going to be able to grow everything. We can't grow coffee here or, or tea. You know, I love tea. But we can do quite a lot locally and that creates opportunities for local people and I really like that Matthew's Cotswold Flour Mill simply because it employs a lot of local people that I know and I think it's important to to, to stimulate that to keep, keep that going because you know the cheapest supplier isn't necessarily always the best one in your local area is it they are the obvious one for me they're literally right down the road and I would think going forward into the future we're more likely to see more of those localized food solutions rather than multinationals which are anonymous what about the future then, Ian? Where do you see things going? Where do you see FarmEd going in, in five years? Well, we, we reflect really what's going on in the farmland. So the changes that are coming out culturally, we think will be quite big, quite large changes. And that will be a move away from, in the UK, we think, uh, very, very intensive production to a more eco-friendly, uh, greener farming system. And it will be different on every farm. It'll be different on every field. You know, they all face different ways. There were different altitudes, different soil types. But the, the important thing to note is that I think this uh, obsession that we've had with monocultures, which is destructive. So monoculture is, is growing a single variety of, let's say, cereal for a commodity production. So that would mean lots of fertilizers and pesticides, uh, many of which we know are polluting our waterways or emitting nitrous oxide into the atmosphere. You know, it, it, there's a lot of negative side of that. And what we need is a mixed farming system that rebuilds as well as taking these annual crops from. And at the moment, we have some areas where we're just taking the annual crops, and that's a destructive cycle that will will end in the soil blowing away in time. So our objective here, our aim, is to see a much more diverse farming system, and we will encourage those conversations. Uh, We don't have all the solutions, of course. We're we're a place where people come to have those uh, difficult discussions but we can see a very different-looking future coming up over the next few years and decades. Ian, how might people listening to the podcast come here to FarmEd and, and experience what, what, what's going on here? So we have um, there's three ways of coming to FarmEd. Uh, we have a cafe, which a lot of people enjoy coming to during the week, but mostly we have groups of p- people coming here, so groups of bakers, for example, or groups of farmers, uh, maybe a wildlife trust or a, a, a corporation thinking about its ESG. And so it depends on who you are as to how you might access us. We also have courses and events that we, we run. We have deep dive courses into soils and ecology, and we have other courses that would be much more a much wider appeal, say a sourdough making course. We also have uh, events such as our literary festival and um, some very you know very friendly and very accessible great fun days here celebrating not just literature but also foods of course and the great farming that can be done in the UK. You're listening to the Food Bod Pod with Matthew's Cotswold Flower, bringing you 200 years of farming and milling excellence. I'm Danielle Semple and I'm the Assistant Programme Coordinator here at FarmEd. Danielle, I understand you're a specialist in a certain kind of creature. Yes, you could say that. Um, I'm a big fan of earthworms. I know a lot about them. I'm trying to advocate for their increase in popularity. I think that compared to some other animals, such as the humble bumblebee or honeybee, they're slightly misrepresented and misunderstood. So I'm trying to wave the flag for them and make sure that they're equally understood, represented in a way that they can help soil compared to pollination. 
how does the humble earthworm improve the quality of agriculture? So they're multifaceted creatures, despite being very gross to look at, not very <laughs> attractive. But essentially what they do is they affect all different factors of the soil from biological, chemical and physical properties. So with the physical properties that they help the soil with, they allow increase in aeration of the soil and also water infiltration. So we know that the soil is actually 50% air. So compacted soils that get waterlogged we need more air into them so they're really helpful and then obviously having an increased number of earthworms can help the water in the winter months get further down into the long long-term storage of the soil so that's super beneficial but also in the casts so their poo that they produce it can be up to eight times richer in nutrients which basically is farmers fertilizer and we know that fertilizer is completely unsustainable in firstly the way it's produced but also for farmers pockets so earthworms do it for free for us which is great um, but also it's in a more available form to the plants as it's in their rooting depth, so that's really beneficial. So is it fair to say that soil that contains a good number of earthworms is a healthy soil? Yes, and they have been classed as soil indicators, so they can indicate the health of your soil just purely in their numbers. So the rule of thumb that science suggests is if you have less than four per spade it's a poor quality soil so more organic matter is needed and then anything between five and eight earthworms is a good quality soil you've got enough organic matter for them and then nine plus earthworms in a spadeful is great Um, so you'll often see that in gardens or you know really rich organic matter systems but in an arable system we don't find a lot Um, and actually some science suggests that earthworms are rare or missing in two out of five fields in the UK. I was going to ask you whether earthworms are declining or whether they're healthy and and continuing to help. Well, they're healthy in the areas that they um, like to live in, which is, you know, woodland, hedgerows, wildflower margins, all those nice bits of land that essentially just left (laughs) because disturbance physically is the biggest way that their numbers are reduced, which is the plough and compaction of the soil, spraying. It affects all of them, but... The places that they thrive in is those hedgerows because there's organic matter, it's, de- it's dense, it's moist for them. So, yeah, um, we need to kind of start converting the land that we farm in to be a similar system to a, a left hedgerow. So what about people with their own gardens? How can they encourage, particularly if they grow vegetables and so mm-hmm. on, how can they encourage the soil to be better and richer and produce better crops? Well, some people ask me, can I just put earthworms onto my soil? And you can, but they won't stay there. <laughs> they like to roam. Um, the most important factor for them is organic matter. So that decomposing rich plant litter. So when you have enough of that, your earthworms will stay in situ. Um, So either that's through putting cover crops, such as, you know, some flowers or mustard or whatever. I know that's quite an interesting area for gardeners at the moment. Or it could be with a compost system. So if you have really good quality compost, you put that on the soil, the earthworms will thrive in it. There's enough food for them. It's plentiful. And yeah, that's two of the easiest ways, really, that you can encourage them back. And the home gardener can presumably also encourage that by introducing, are they called worm farms in their compost system? (laughs) Yeah, so it's a vermicomposting system. Vermi is worm in Latin. And essentially what that is, it's just giving all the earthworms your household waste, garden waste. um, You can even put human waste (laughs) in a vermicompost system. And they're incredible creatures where they can actually clean everything that they eat so you can give them drugs, toxic, harmful chemicals in their food. And when it's 
when they poo it out it's clean so then you can you're allowed to use it on your garden because there's no trace elements left behind so it's truly miraculous so if if all else goes wrong we have earthworms you know because we they clean water they clean waste um we can produce food from them so yeah they're truly they are a superhero Danielle Sample at FarmEd. Fascinating stuff. And we're staying at FarmEd for the final feature in this episode, but outside in one of the wheat fields. Bertie Matthews explained to Elaine what they were looking at, not just any wheat field. So you are looking at a field of wheat, but you're looking at a field of very special wheat. And it's special because it's a old population, a heritage population of wheat. So if we look here, a normal wheat field, well, all of the wheat will look the same whereas here you can quite clearly see we've got lots of different varieties and that diversity in the field is also good for the soil because the different varieties will be taking up different types of nutrition and they'll be working together how do you know it's ready a big clue there's a harvester right there uh, and then they've they're about ready to harvest but uh, Sophie just told me today that it's 17.2% moisture remember when we went down yeah. to the field it needs to be 15 so it's still a bit wet. We've got grey clouds above us and we've had a lot of wet and moisture in the whole of July. It's now August 1st, so uh, it needs to dry out a little bit. And another reason that this is special is generally wheat fields, and we may see one in a minute, a wheat field would be up to about your knee. Right. Yeah, a wheat field that goes into bread flour, plain or self-raising would be up to your knee. Here you can see this is a very tall variety of wheat. Yeah, Not quite as tall as rye, but all different heights. There's no definitive row going through this field because it's a real population, a mix of different types of wheat, which is amazing. And down here, what you can see is they've got a cover crop. And what that does, what this clover does, is it helps to cover the soil. And because the soil is covered, when it does rain, the soil can retain the moisture and hold on, hold on to that water, really good water retention. And that's what you want when you've got a really hot, dry summer like we had last year. So the cover crop is helping keep the water in the soil. The diverse range of populations of grains is helping to create a really a diverse range of nutrition in your end product. And Ears is going to harvest this probably in the next couple of days. And... Um, We'll, uh, he'll send it down to the mill and we'll stone ground mill it and they'll sell the flour in the, at farmhead. So the bread will be made from this. Would I be right in thinking that a field that's got this mix of wheat growing in it is not typical because it, it's not commercially viable? So th this, this field, I'm not quite sure of the size of it, probably sort of a couple of acres. So if we imagine an acre, which may be halfway up this field, maybe a little bit more, this field will produce, if it was conventional, which we'll see in a minute, will produce 3.3, 3.5 tonnes per that acre. And what you'll see is a much more bunched up grain altogether, all single variety. And that's where 99% of our food comes from. That's the farming model where 99% of our food comes from. What we're seeing here is a lower yielding wheat population. So this may only do about a tonne an acre. So the lower the yield, uh, the less the farmer's going to get from that particular field. Uh, but also the more expensive the wheat may be. So this is not necessarily something that could be mass-produced to feed everybody in the country, but as a part of the process, or a part of a rotation, it certainly could be. And um, when people see a heritage flower, heritage white, heritage wholemeal, this is the type of field that it's come from. But it's, it, it is very different from conventional. 
And you can see, because it's very picturesque, because you have got different shapes of wheat, different colours, they're different heights, you've got some wild flowers growing in it. So it's very picturesque, isn't it? it even if it's not commercially ideal. I mean, the, the, the thing here is, is, what is the value of this? And we're sometimes too simplistic in terms of, oh, I need value in my pocket. But actually, what's the value of this? Well, the value of this is there's way more biodiversity in this field. Yeah, there's a little bug on there, for example, on this flat. There's lots of different types of bugs and bees and microorganisms in this field than there would be in a conventional field. So that's got value to the soil and it's got value to the environment. The flavour of, of a loaf made from this type of weed is going to be far more dynamic, far more interesting, far more tasting. So that's value as well. It might be a higher cost because it's producing a third or less of what a normal field will be, and that's why it's a higher cost. But the value it's giving back to our soils, so that the soils can create a more nutritious crop next year. So next year this might go into rape or beans, and the soil is going to be in a far better position than it would have been if it had a conventional crop using lots of pesticides and fertilizers and nitrogen hitting the soil. It's going to be a far better set point for next year. And that's the whole point about long crop rotations. And I would really encourage our listeners, if you haven't already heard the episode in which we were talking to Bertie to explain about soil and how to look after soil and what needs to be done for future crops, do go back and listen because it will tie in very much with this episode. So if you listen to this and you're enjoying it and you want to learn more, go back and listen to that one as well, I would say. Or do even better than that and learn from people who know far more than me and, and come up to FarmEd and, and hear from some amazing industry experts from all around the world and come and see the fields for yourself because they're the really true experts. We've walked up here to another field and I can see for myself the difference here. The wheat is shorter, it's very uniform. So what are we looking at? So if we think about bread, and we think about bread flour and we think about wanting to create a high protein wheat what we see in the field today is where our bread flour comes from this is crusoe wheat group one farmed conventionally it's a lot tighter spacing which it means it's a lot higher yielding and this is really where all most of our um, bread flour comes from this type of wheat and the difference is as you pointed out it's shorter it's not using as much energy and nutrition to get high that means it doesn't lodge which means it doesn't fall over it's not prone to falling over you know it's been been modified and 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 bred to be this height and to be this uniform and to be high yielding and what farmers will do and, and this is it's no bad thing because we need to produce food it's this is how we need to produce food what farmers will do is they will put a nitrogen on to feed the protein um, if they need to manage pests or um, they'll put pesticides on and fungicides which isn't great for the soil but there is done to be able to create still nutritious food and still enough food to feed the country and the world so I'm not here advocating that conventional farming is a bad thing because it's absolutely not a thing. It's the way we've been farming for 60, 70 years. But I think it's interesting to come here to see the difference. There's bare ground. Yep. So when it gets hot, the ground's going to get hot. The, it's very, very short. It's very easy to harvest. It's nice and bunched up, which means there's lots of wheat going to come from this. So in terms of a, a conventional model, it's, it's a big tick for producing food and producing protein to make bread. And a lot of the strong whites out there will come from 
all, all of them will come from fields like this. It's just a, the point of difference between a system that regenerates soil and the slightly lower yielding but slightly more complex in terms of its flavour versus a system that needs to provide nutrition in terms of protein to make consistent breads and feed the country. And those are the two differences. I think it's fascinating to actually see it in the flesh because you can see such a difference between the two fields and how the wheat looks, the colour, everything. So it's just a brilliant example that they've got here that you can see it all in one go. And, and I think a lot of people don't, may not even know what a wheat field looks like or not know what the differences are. And I think the point will be, how can we bridge the gap between looking after the soil and creating enough food and nutritious food at the same time? So let's take that clover from over there. You know, next year, could some clover go on the ground here so the ground is covered? Mm. Could, we, could we direct drill this wheat in September rather than putting a big plough through it? Because when you put a plough through the soil, you're going to release all of that carbon. So is there a middle ground where we can create the food and look after the soil without having a big cost in your pocket and a big cost to the soil degradation? So that's what I think farming is at the moment. There's some brilliant, brilliant farmers out there doing exactly that, um, finding that middle ground, balancing the value between the soil and your pocket. Looking at this, how do they decide it's time to harvest it? Well, it's very, very close. Um, I'm going to pinch one now, but essentially what they're going to do... Hang on a minute. So you, what you've done is just pick up an ear of wheat. Oh, yeah. And you're rolling it between your hands. going to rub it. You're rubbing it. So if you had to do this for a sample, you might be out here for an hour, and some people do. But what you're going to do is you're going to take a small sample of the grains. Whoa. Blow it like that Blow in your face. Blow the all over me. And then you're going to get that sample, and you're going to test it. And you're going to test it for moisture. So Sophie's already said this is 17.2, we need it 15. So Bertie's putting it between his two front teeth to see how hard it is when he bites into it. So it's a little bit too soft, which means it's probably got too much moisture in it. Okay. But in terms of, also you can look at the colouring. So generally a more high protein grain will have a slightly darker colouring. Um, this might not have had a lot of inputs on it because it's a demonstration farm, but that looks relatively light for me, which would suggest maybe the protein's quite low. But I think this is a demonstration farm. Um, Ian won't be putting as much inputs on it, like um, potassium and nitrogen and all that kind of stuff. So that is a little bit lighter. If I looked at that from a conventional farm, I would think, oh dear, it's probably not going to be high enough protein. So, and that means the farmer's going to be paid a little bit less. But this is a demonstration farm. And in terms of what we're looking at, it does, it does the job in comparison to the heritage. So the fact that you can bite into it and it's a bit soft tells you it's not ready to harvest yet. If I didn't know it was already 17.2%, yes. then the question would be, what percentage protein, uh, what percentage moisture is it? That would be right, really okay. in the so know. So that's, that's how you need to decide it's this time. Is, this is obviously too soft. And Dad and I used to do this when we were kids, going out to all the different fields and biting into them and all that kind of stuff. And I have seen farmers do that before, but I didn't know why. But what's interesting is when you bite into it, and as you've shown me, inside is white, and that's the flower. Yeah, that's the, that's the endosperm. Okay. which will be the flower. So you bite into it and you can see what the outer layer is and inside is all white. So that's the good stuff that we want for our bread. Yeah, exactly. This is very cool.
And thanks to Bertie Matthews for a, just a fantastic day taking us through not only the process of creating the flour that we all use to bake our bread and, uh, and cakes and pastries and, and biscuits and so on, but also devoting time to explain to us the difference between different wheat varieties and show us the value of heritage farming and regenerative farming. It really was a, a lovely day, wasn't it, Elaine? Oh, it was. And it, it, you know, it never ceases to make me smile whenever I visit the mill, just the, the, the process of it. But I think as well, just Bertie's pure enthusiasm, you, you can't help but get carried away with it. Yeah. Um, and people can see I've been back to the mill and I've put together a video to take you round so that you can see what goes on on the floors you can have an idea of where we were but much better to listen to Bertie taking you through it but at least I can provide you with some imagery for those of you that can't get there but it just you know we I just think it's fascinating that we have these bags of flour in our cupboard you and I use these David yeah absolutely and, all the time yeah you know we've watched a lorry bring that wheat in. We've, we've seen the fields, you know, we drive through the Cotswolds to see the fields it's coming from. We see a lorry bring it to the mill, see it in its kind of raw state, and then all the processes it goes through to become our flower. I just, oh, I love it. I, and, I, it and, never and, gets boring. And, and the other... The other thing that intrigues me as we, as, as you said, we drive through the Cotswolds, you're coming from one direction, I'm coming from another direction when we meet up at, at, at the mill. But all the villages you drive through, they're the names of the flowers, yes. which is great. So you can actually put a, an image of a village to the bag of flour that you're using to bake your bread or whatever you're using it for. Oh, absolutely. I went for lunch with Bertie last week at a pub in Churchill. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, drive past the name of the village going, that's the name of my flower. <laughs> <laughs> great stuff. Well, what a great episode that was. And thanks very much indeed to everyone at FarmEd and at Matthews Cotswold Flower Mill for making us feel so welcome and devoting so much time to us to, uh, to make this particular episode of our podcast. Now, coming up next month. Next month, we bring you butchery we are with a master butcher so we are with simon body who is my uh, older brother-in-law and um, but that's not the reason we're with him we're with him because he is a master butcher yeah, and he is and vastly knowledgeable and as i said from the beginning with this podcast i may be vegetarian but not everyone else is and this podcast is not about me sharing my choices yeah. and we want to cover everybody and simon is brilliant so we are we are there with Simon and a hunk of meat and who's got lots of tips and knowledge to share. So I hope that you will join us because we also have another recipe from the fabulous Cherie Denham, mm. who is showing us. I mean, I didn't realise how simple you could make lemon curd. I mean, no, just, I, I, I thought it was a complicated process, but it's it's actually relatively easy, isn't it? Well, that's how she makes it. Well, yes, um, yeah. Just, just, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if Absolutely I tried, amazing. Might, if I tried, it might be a bit different. <laughs> <laughs> so there's your next challenge, David. Absolutely. Um, so we've got another recipe coming from Cherie. So do listen. And also, we're very excited for Cherie because she has her own mega news as she is bringing out her very first book, The Irish Bakery, which is due out on the 1st of October. So whatever point you're listening to this at, we are sending huge congratulations to Cherie and it looks beautiful. So hopefully we'll hear more about that 
when we talk to Cherie again later in the year. But that's it for this episode. So thanks for listening. It's goodbye from me, David Treadway. And from me, Elaine Boddy. And thanks to Matthews Cotswold Flower. See you next time. <laughs>